0: Counterintelligence is produced by Forensic News. Support independent journalism at patreon.com backslash forensic news. Special thanks to Dana Berry, Andre Duncan, William Healy, Angela Jackson, Zacharias zscore Kaminsky, Sasha Milstone, Craig Pierce, Greg Schneider, and Jason Zimmerman. Today's guest is the legendary broadcaster, Tom Hartman. Man, it's a thrill to have you here. How are you doing today?
1: Well, thank you, Erica. It's a, I'm, I'm great. I'm fine. And it's great to be with you.
0: The new book is called The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class, something I think we can all get behind. Uh, Just tell us about the book. Uh, Start anywhere you want.
1: Well, I I wanted to do a deep dive into uh, kind of where we're at now and how we got here and and what we're on the edge of, what we're on the verge of. And uh, America has been sliding into oligarchy fairly rapidly since the mid-1970s. Uh, and largely as a result of a series of Supreme Court decisions. And uh, it, it seems like this is just a, a, you know, a, a topic that is not discussed generally in the, in the mainstream media. The mainstream media is mostly owned by oligarchs and the people who you see on television and you hear on the big national radio shows tend to be multimillionaires or multi-hundred millionaires in some cases. And uh, so they don't wanna talk about it. And so uh, I I thought it was important. Also the last book, this is the, I think the fifth or sixth in the series and uh, the the book uh, of the hidden history series and the one that preceded it was the hidden history of uh, monopoly. And it was how when wealth gets concentrated or or when actually corporate power gets concentrated um, so effectively that they can block out competition you have monopoly. So, what happens when political power gets very, very concentrated, kind of in the same way, and typically by the same people—the you know the captains of industry? Um, then you have a, a political system called oligarchy. So, the the economic system is monopoly. The political system is oligarchy. And so, the books are kind of bookends to each other.
0: I think one thing that people have sort of learned—or I'm not sure if that's the right word—but realized in the last during the Trump administration. At forensic news, we report a lot on oligarchs in other countries, and I think a lot of people. I'll put myself. I never thought of an oligarchy in this country, and I guess I didn't see it that way. But when Trump came in, you were like, "Yeah, they're they're no different, are they? No different." No,
1: it's uh, you know, oligarchy. The 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 quick and easy definition is rule by the rich, Hmm. and that's what we have. You know, the uh, I don't think there's a single person in the Senate who's not a multimillionaire. Um, Probably the poorest guy is Bernie Sanders, and you know, he's just you know. he he made a million dollars selling a book, but outside yeah. of that, you know, yeah. he just lived on a salary his whole life. Um, and and but you've got uh, some of the wealthiest people in America, you know, are are in the in the Senate, and, and and not necessarily just personal wealth as well. I mean, Mitch McConnell controls a super PAC that that I mean, he just kind of casually poured $50 million into the Georgia race in the last two weeks, uh, you know, just, Hey, here's 50 million bucks, uh, you know, that he, he could control. is one of the ways that he keeps his power as the, as the Senate minority minority leader now, but, you know, was the majority leader.
0: And boy, does that feel good to say, by the way, just yeah. of my- <laughs> Amen.
1: Amen. Um, but the bottom line is that, you know, uh, in 1976 for the first time in the history of the United States, the Supreme Court said that if a, a wealthy person wants to give so much money to an individual politician, that they functionally own that politician, that they are the, that politician's principal source of support, that, that politician's principal means of getting elected, and that that politician in turn passes legislation that benefits that, that wealthy person. Prior to 1976, this was considered either bribery or corruption or both, and there were laws against it. In 1976, in a Supreme Court case called Buckley versus uh, yeah, uh, Buckley versus Vallejo, excuse me, mm. the U.S. Supreme Court with Lewis Powell on the court. Nixon put him on the court in '72. In '71, he wrote a memo, the, the famous Powell memo, basically telling the oligarchs we've got to take over this country and laid out exactly how to do it. And he got put on the Supreme Court the next year. And in '76, on the court, um, you know, the court decided. No, that's not bribery. That's not corruption. That's free speech. Money is the same thing as speech, didn't you know? And uh, so that, you know, started opening the doors. Then two years later, in another case, First National Bank versus Bilotti, where this bank in Boston, the First National Bank of Boston had been uh, engaging in political activity that had nothing to do with banking, which was a violation of Massachusetts state laws. And the bank sued all the way to the Supreme Court saying we're a person. We should be able to sponsor any politician we want uh, for any purpose. Um, In fact, the bank had been involved in an abortion uh, debate, And, and, uh, and the Supreme Court, this decision was actually written by Lewis Powell, said, yeah, corporations are people, and people have First Amendment rights of free speech, and because we established two years ago that money is the same thing as speech, corporations can also own politicians. And then we've had a series of decisions since then, Citizens United in 2010, McCutcheon in 2013, that expanded those rights to the point. And I mean, prior to McCutcheon, there was a limit, you know, you couldn't own functionally more than about 120 politicians. Well, now there's no limit. You know, if, if a, a billionaire wants to own every single Republican in the House of Representatives, no problem, we mm-hmm. can make that happen. So uh, this is the, this is the, these are the changes in law that uh, along with the oligarchs building this huge infrastructure from, the, from uh, billionaire Rupert Murdoch's media infrastructure over at Fox News to the, uh, to the, the, the billionaire Joe Coors, mm-hmm. he's now passed away, and, and Richard Mellon Scaife's passed mm-hmm. away, but their foundations and them back in the day in 1980 or in the late 70s, early 80s, funding things like the Heritage Foundation, the Koch brothers founding the Cato Institute, which started out as the Charles Koch Foundation. Every single state now has a state policy. Um, you know, in, in Michigan, it's called the Mackinac uh, something or other. Um, uh, I'm not, I don't frankly remember the name of the one. There's so many. Oregon. Yeah, there's, there's one for every state, a think tank, and they're constantly cranking out papers. We now have over 200 universities whose political science departments, uh, econ de- and econ departments are largely owned by billionaires, most of them associated with the Koch network. Um, You know, we're just what we've seen is the infrastructure slowly, methodically, carefully, step by step, starting in 1971, the infrastructure of oligarchy being built. And you saw it really flex its muscles in in the period from 2016 to 2020 during the Trump administration. And it nearly flipped this country into full blown tyranny. So we've got we've got to pull back from this. This is this is dangerous stuff for democracy.
0: Right. In the beginning of your book, you said it was, which is obviously was written before the election was decided, but you basically said, this is it, which I agree with. We sort of, it's a breather. But one thing I was thinking about this morning, when I was thinking about this interview, I want to know why why progressives, uh, anybody who's not a far right winger, why are we always just gasping? It's like, it's a win, but it's like you've taken five steps back and one forward. Like, yeah. why is it like that? Why Why are we always just gasping for air?
1: It's like that because both monopoly and oligarchy are all about the money. They're both about wealthy people, wealthy institutions, wealthy corporations, defining public opinion, controlling public opinion, um, massaging public opinion, um, selecting the voters for the candidates, um, all these kinds of things. They're all being driven by money. Prior to 1980, the Democratic Party had Basically, just as much money as the Republican Party did. In fact, when the Buckley decision and the Bellotti decision happened in 76 and 78, um, the Republicans said, hey, free money, we'll take all we can get. And that, you know, this this avalanche, this waterfall of money brought Ronald Reagan into office in 1980. But the Democratic Party said, eh, you know, the unions, I mean, the unions were so washing cash back then, because a third of America was unionized. The unions had so much cash that a few of the union leaders were corruptly using it. You know, Jimmy Hoffa, most famously. So uh, Reagan came into office and his first mandate, his most important job in his mind, was to destroy the funding mechanism for the Democratic Party so that there could be multiple generations of Republican rule. Never again would Democrats, you know, basically own the political space like they had since 1932. And he did it. He did it. I mean, you know, a third of America was unionized when Reagan came into office. It was down to down to in the teens by the time uh, George Herbert Walker Bush left office. The 12 years of the Reagan Bush era, um, it is now six percent of the public work of the private workforce in the United States. Another two or three percent of the public workforce. But even there, for example, when Scott Walker took over Wisconsin, what did he do? He passed a law allowing him to destroy the uh, the the unions for people who work for the state. You know, the the, the state employees unions. So uh, when the unions were wiped out, uh, this, and this happened very quickly. I mean, th- this literally happened in a period of about 12 years. So in 1992, Bill Clinton's looking around going, I want to be president, but you know, nobody's got the cash. And so we're going to have to go to corporations because the unions can't support us anymore. And, and there's not enough politically active Democrats uh, you know, uh, who, are, who are very, very rich. And so he and Al Fromm created this thing called the DLC, the Democratic Leadership Council, and uh, you know went out and started raising money. They said we'll take corporate money, but only from good corporations, not from evil corporations. So we'll take money from the healthcare insurance companies, and we'll take money from hospitals, and we'll take money from pharma, and we'll take money from the banks, and you know, and 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 we'll leave the steel and the oil and the dirty industries. We'll leave that to the Republicans. And that was the bifurcation, right? That Clinton envisioned. And that became the funding mechanism for the Democratic Party for the better part of of 30 years and uh, or 20, at least 20 years. And it wasn't until Obama was able to demonstrate that that wasn't necessary, although he was still heavily using that source of funding, which is why we got Obamacare rather than a single payer system, for example. Um, But it wasn't until Obama proved that you could raise money from the grassroots and then Bernie double proved it that the democratic party said okay you know even though the unions are dead we can still exist without corporate money which is a big deal and so now you've got about 100 members you know out of the 200 and i think it's two two 224 or something like that uh, democratic members of the house about 100 of them um, are members of the progressive caucus which means that they can't take money from corporations or from yeah. corporate PACs. so we're starting to see the democratic party in a big way move back to its Its uh, its roots as the party of the people, which is where it's been since the 1920s. Whereas with the election of 1920, when Warren Harding came into office, that was when the official uh, the Republican Party officially became the party of big business.
0: I've been thinking a lot about what, as we all have, about what happened at the the Capitol. And uh, by the way, I have to say, I I would be I would be in journalistic if I didn't bring this up. Page 128 of Tom's book, written before this. Take militias and violence seriously, uh, mm. boy.
1: Yeah, that's the headline.
0: I mean, uh, I, I'm not saying you're patting yourself on the back because nobody feels good about this, but you got to be. It was like, fairly <laughs>
1: obvious. <laughs> you got to be.
0: <laughs> have you? I mean, have you thought about? I mean, have you thought about that and that you wrote? Oh, it we, in?
1: we, we. You know, that bullet went flying right by us. It took yeah. a, it took a nick out of our skin, and uh, had Republicans controlled the House of Representatives. We may well no longer be in a, a democracy. Donald Trump would be right now declaring himself emperor.
0: Probably wouldn't be good for uh, for you or for for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, because the first thing they start doing
1: when this happens, if you look at what Putin did, if you look at what Erdogan did, if you look at what LCC did, if you look at what what uh, uh, in the Philippines, uh, Duterte did, if you look at what Bolsonaro did down in Brazil, oh. uh, if you look at what Fujimori did in Peru, in Peru I mean, case after case, look at uh, in uh, Chile, uh, Oh Pinochet, what Pinochet did. The first thing they do is they start arresting journalists.
0: Yeah. One thing I thought about uh, just with the Capitol was that you know, you talked about how everyone's multi multimillionaires now. And one thing I've been thinking about is for the first time, when they were confronted by, when they felt real fear, fear for their lives, the reason I think there might be change is because they're so insulated because of the money. But for mm-hmm. the first time, it didn't, it didn't work. Do you have any thoughts on that and how that might help in a way?
1: I think that um, the Republican members of Congress who were going along with Trump's big lie about election fraud, thought that they could ride that tiger to victory. And um, certainly Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz uh, and perhaps a few others, Tom Cotton, Mm.
0: thought
1: they could even ride it to the White House. And it was a bad bet. They didn't realize that Trump, excuse me, was as full-out fascist as as he is. He doesn't understand democracy, doesn't believe in democracy. He's run his own business his whole life. Businesses are set up not like democracies, they're set up like kingdoms. Trump has always been the king and he wanted to be the king of America. And uh, I think these guys just thought they could, you know that, that Trump that there was some reasonableness left in Trump, and they badly uh, underestimated how fundamentally evil that man was.
0: I appreciate you using the word fascist, and I also didn't want to ask you, you know as a broadcaster and as a writer, I mean, I've experienced some of my own problems like my words are changed by other people. My, you know, I wrote an article on the domestic terrorist, the Capitol. It was changed to rioters, things like that. Oh, uh, what, what's the what exactly is the problem with just calling it what it is? Do you think? I don't have a
1: problem with calling it what it is. Yeah. The, the 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 media, you know, they've been beaten down. This this really started in in 1981. Uh, Lee Atwater was one of the architects of the Reagan Revolution and of Reagan's election. And uh, uh, although he also worked with uh, Manafort and Stone, mm-hmm. weirdly enough, <laughs> on Nixon's election in 68, on his reelection in 72, on Reagan's election in 1980, and his reelection in 84. And, and Lee Atwater coined this phrase, work the refs. He said, uh, the example that he gave is he said, when, when I go to my kid's little league game, uh, I, and I want my kid to be the star of the game, when the referee, when there's a call that you know could go one way or the other, I'm down there yelling at the referee that he better do it in favor of my kid. I'm working the ref. He said, so we need to do the same thing. And the referees in American politics are the media. And out of that working the ref strategy, a number of organizations emerged that um, purported to keep the media you know, honest. And this huge mythology about the liberal media Uh, came out and was amplified loudly by people like Rush Limbaugh. And, you know, we started broadcasting in, in, uh, in 87. I mean, before, while Reagan was still president Mm -hmm. and the, and Atwater was still very much around and, and, and it's a, it's a mythology that has been largely adopted by America. Most Americans will tell you that they think that the media does have a liberal slant to it. I would argue that facts have a liberal slant to them, (laughs) but, um, You know, there's that widespread belief and it's not an accident. It didn't fall out of the sky. And uh, it's the result of 40 years of hard work on the part of people, you know, Lee Atwater and his heirs. And then what Trump was doing for his four years was he was setting up the execution of people like you and me, or at least the arrest and imprisonment of people like you and me, by calling the media enemy of the people. Mm. And when you look at history, you look at what Joe Stalin did, you, you, you look at, at what Erdogan did, um, you look at what Xi in China did, you look at you know case after case after case, as soon as leaders start referring to the press as enemies of the people, typically within a decade, you've got journalists in prison or being assassinated or being uh, executed by the state. And that's the direction that we were heading and again it was all following on this mythology that the the media has a specific political bias i have a political bias but i don't present my show as news my show is an opinion show i do a talk radio program i'll talk about the news but i'm not i'm you know i'm not bsing anybody that hey tune into my show to hear the news you tune into my show to hear my opinion about the news and the opinion of my listeners and my guests and um but uh, to say that, you know, straight up news, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, are biased is just the vilest kind of lie that leads to the most destructive kind of consequences.
0: Was there one thing when you were, is, oh, let me ask you this, is oligarchy something you've been interested in for a long time prior to the Trump era, I assume?
1: I've been watching the rise of oligarchy my whole entire life. Um, you know, back when I was protesting against the Vietnam War as a teenager. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that that was when I really realized that the, that the, the military industrial complex that Dwight Eisenhower warned us about was a, actually a thing and that they had the ability to control public opinion and politics to an extent, um, you know, when Lyndon Johnson lied us into Vietnam mm. and, uh, you know, just like George Bush lied us into Iraq. Just like, just like, uh, you know, McKinley lied us into the Spanish American war, Uh, just like Polk lied us into the Mexican American war, which, which Abraham Lincoln, you know, then as a legislator in Springfield, Missouri, called him out on it and said, he's lying us into a war, This is not new, but what is new is that an entire industry is behind it. And uh, I figured that out when I was 17 and I, I don't think much has changed. It's just gotten worse since then.
0: Yeah. What exactly? So was it just the money or what, what happened? Why did, it, why did it get worse? Is it, it's, it's all the money, right? Basically.
1: Well, by and large, yeah, money and power are, are largely interchangeable, money and political power. And you know, political power uh, enhances the ability to keep and make money, and money enhances the ability to get and hold political power. And you've, uh, that's the big challenge of our day. And that's why the first piece of legislation that Nancy Pelosi is gonna have coming out of the House of Representatives here in the next week or so is uh, HR1, which is the first piece of legislation she put out two years ago too, which uh, basically reforms our elections and gets dark money out of our elections. And that's why I, you know, I'm on the mailing list of uh, FreedomWorks, the, the group that brought us the Tea Party, you know, that the Koch brothers started back in the day. And uh, in the last two days, I've gotten two emails from them, just squealing about it. They're calling it the gag act. You know, it's going, it's going, it's going to force us to reveal who our funders are, so that Antifa can go to their house and beat them up. Yeah. Um, like you know, billionaires really worry about Antifa. You know? yeah. uh, it's just, it's, but they're, 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 they have the power now, and they very much want to hang on to it. And HR one is going to be a vital piece of legislation. And I encourage Eric to encourage your, your listeners, your viewers, you know, people who are you know, listening to you to get involved, to call Congress, call their members of Congress, uh, 202-224-3121 is the phone number for the switchboard. And you can simply, if you, if you don't know who represents you in the house, you can simply say, hey, my zip code is X, you know, who represents me? They'll say, oh, it's Joe Blow and they'll connect you. Um, or if you don't know who your two senators are, but we all need to be working on this. This This is where that link gets broken. And if we can successfully break that link, we can walk back from the ledge, from the precipice of oligarchy and tyranny successfully. If we can't break that link, then the next president is probably going to be somebody like Tom Cotton, who will do the exact same stuff Donald Trump did, but we'll do it in a way that is slick, that, that is easily sold, that the average person doesn't understand, and that seems to be all American.
0: An election was won, and the candidate that most of us who are sane wanted to win won. We have two years even, because we don't know what's going to happen with the next uh, midterm election, the next time. Yeah. yeah, We just have to do as much as we can in this two years.
1: Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, we've got, we've got, you know, eight, 10, 12 months before primaries start. Oh God. <laughs> you know, we gotta, we gotta get some stuff done here.
0: I enjoyed it for like one day. I was like, I'm going to take one day just to enjoy <laughs> this. I'm sure you did too. It's yeah. like, anything else you think we need to get done? I mean, besides it's just legislation on your mind, it could be related to the book or anything.
1: Well, you know, we, breaking the link between money and politics is is the biggest battle that we have to fight, and then we then we can turn to other policy issues like ending student debt. You know, the we've forty. You know, Reagan, prior to Reagan, I I, I went to college. I didn't graduate, but I went to college back in the in the late sixties, and I could pay for my tuition, my room and board, the apartment that I had you know, across the street from MSU on uh, Grand River Avenue, um, the $35 car I bought. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I covered all of that working as a dishwasher at Bob's Big Boy and changing tires and pumping gas at the Esso station on Trowbridge Road. You could do that back then. i never had a penny of student debt. My wife actually worked her way through college working as a waitress at Howard Johnson's, you know. Um, you could do that back then. Reagan came in and said, no, we're not going to have that anymore. We've got, we've got to take down the middle class. They've gotten too uppity. And, and by the way, if you're going to have education, somebody should be able to make a buck off it. This is the Republican mantra for any public <laughs> service. You know, somebody should be able to make a buck off this. And so we, now we have the education industry. And as a result of that, you've got $1.5 trillion in student debt in America. 40 years has accumulated $1.5 trillion of student debt. That's the exact same amount as Donald Trump's first tax break for multimillionaires and billionaires, the exact same amount. So if we could just roll back Trump's tax cut and we could pay off all the student debt in America, and then going forward, we could easily you know, go back to what we had for most of you know, American history, where people with a part-time job could actually go to college or trade school, um, and we need to bring back our public schools. You know, um, Betsy DeVos has just kneecapped our public school system, gutted it, and, and you know, in, in an effort to just, you know, bring about a, pro- a totally privatized school system. Um, so, th- I mean, that's just one little issue, right? Education. Then there's healthcare. care. Um, then there's, you know, regulating the financial industry and banking. And, and then there's, you know, labor policy and the minimum wage. And I mean, there's just... Now, you know, if we can get money out of politics, then we can start dealing with these issues, the environment. But as long as big money dominates politics, every single one of those issues has a large multi-billion dollar interest group behind their side of it. And, you know, and, and who's going up against that? People like you and me, good <laughs> luck, right? Which is why it's gotten so bad. So, you know, step by step, but that's where we need to start is getting money out of politics.
0: One thing I want to just say, and then we'll—you've uh, been very generous with your time—and we'll, I'll let you get on with. It. I'm sure. Well, you're writing, of course, what you told me. Uh, I'm the same way. I broadcast in like the morning, and then I, I do my writing later. But no, I just found was. out that Donald Trump—you you probably know this already, but I, I didn't. Do you know when he stopped collecting his inheritance from his father? Like the the time frame. I I,
1: I thought I, he was continuing to get money from that estate.
0: I yeah. I just found out they said it stopped two years ago. I didn't know that. Yeah. So he collected an inheritance until 72 years old.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and by the way, he probably <laughs> stopped collecting it either because he had drained it yeah. or because his niece, Mary Trump is suing him yeah. for ripping off the rest of the family.
0: Yeah. It takes a special person to rip off their relatives, but that, that in a way is a distinctly American thing. We see that in, in families. Yeah. Uh, just not on his level. It's sad. Any final words, uh, any, you end your book on solutions to solve this problem. So I'll leave that to you. What, what is the solution for the American people?
1: Well, we, you know, like I said, you know, not to sound like I'm, I'm reciting a mantra yeah. here, but, you know, we have to get money out of politics. Yeah. Um, we also need to do something about our stacked judicial system, particularly the Supreme Court. Uh, we also have to do something about uh, a public education system in tatters, a public health system. that's the disgrace of the yeah. developed world. Uh, literally no other developed country in the world has people declaring bankruptcy because of medical debt. None. Zero. The number of people who went bankrupt because of medical debt in Greece or Norway or Germany or France or, uh, you know, is zero, you know, pick your developed country, all 34 of the OECD countries. We're the only one where people have medical debt. We're the only one where people have student debt unless they want to go to a, you know, a really highfalutin college, you know, their version of Harvard private college. Um, but public college is is essentially free in every single one of those countries. In fact, in most countries, they subsidize it. In Denmark, they pay you four hundred dollars a month to go to college. And, you know, and everything is free those, and, free and those socialists <laughs> and, it's, and that's not socialism I'm sorry, you know so, but yeah. it's but you know it's just so you know we need to get politically active we need to wake the hell up and and uh and and not stop you know don't don't rest on your laurels thinking oh joe biden's going to take care of everything oh no and the pushback has already started
0: I feel like these far right conservatives like like what you just said you get I didn't know you get paid 400 dollars in Denmark to go to college it's like to turn that down or to to get angry at that you have to be seriously like messed up in the head oh greedy yeah yeah that's that's true yeah tom uh it's been so great having you on the show um I hope we can do it again and just I hope you have a great rest of your day and the book again the hidden history of american oligarchy reclaiming our democracy from the ruling class